Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee Beef, coming to you today from Cannes. We're in a very swish little wine bar type thing, so there's going to be a little bit of ambient noise. There's also a piano near us, which may or may not fire up as we speak. Uh, I have a very interesting guest today, fellow Dubliner actually. Uh, his name is Justin Moore-Louis, and he is a founder and uh, producer at one of the foremost production companies in America, Called Kilo Productions. So I'm welcoming to the podcast, Justin. Thanks very much, Sean. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, before we go into your illustrious past, tell me a little bit about what Kilo is all about and what you do. We're a production company in the standard sense of a production company. We have directors on our roster and we make commercials. Mm-hmm. We started about three years ago, and we realized in the course of three years that the world has definitely changed. From what to what? I just think that the chasing after the 30-second spot, which is what most production companies do out there, is becoming a slight fool's errand. In our view, it's similar to the theatrical motion picture business, where there's always going to be giant tentpole films being made and also small films Sundance yeah. Fair being made but everything in the middle is becoming Squeeze something up. being squeezed and is becoming something else even in the last few years it's become even more competitive with more and more big experienced directors in the marketplace for wanting to make commercials almost regardless of the budget you mean that better quality directors are now interested in making com- commercials? I think they were always interested in making yeah. commercials, but now because less work is out there for making films, right. other work has to fill that gap. And okay. obviously we're seeing that in television. The television has become sort of like the new indie movie. If you look at True Detective or even Game of Thrones, yeah, each one of those hour-long pieces is almost like a small movie. Yeah. We knew when we started that it was going to be very, very competitive, but we also we realised we need to do something slightly different. And so what did you do that was different? I came from a talent agency background and my very first job at the talent agency was looking after below the line talent and so we would represent directors of photography, production designers, yeah. costume designers, editors, etc. And it became clear in the representation of them and also later on when I was making films or commercials that there's one guy or woman on the crew who is sort of undervalued in my view and that's the production designer a really good production designer works with the director or with the creatives early on in the process to sort of tell the story of the film or the commercial or whatever they're doing whereas the director of photography is sort of the character who gets the credit the production designer has sort of been slightly left behind so our idea when we started was how do we bring production designers more to the forefront of the commercial world and the idea was maybe some of these big time production designers might want to direct commercials and the very occasional one has become famous Joel Schumacher is probably the most famous production designer became became a director so we went to guys that I knew like Nathan Crowley who does the Batman movies and KK Barrett who's Spike Jones's designer and sort of said to them you know do you guys want to direct and some of them say yes and some of them say no 
so we were on to something we didn't know exactly what it was but it was the core idea I suppose was trying to eke out a new piece of talent right uh, that hadn't necessarily been and these tapped. people obviously needing work because that part of the business was shrinking yeah and also and another another you know yourself when you reach a certain point in your career when you're doing something and you've won some Oscars and you've worked with the biggest directors and you feel like you've what done next? yeah there's a bit of what next and there's a bit of also as these guys get to a certain age and have families they don't necessarily want to be in China for three years right, okay. to, you know working yeah. on a film they would prefer to be closer to home with their kids growing up that's what we started the company with we started the company with a, with a few of these kind of big time production designers and trying to see whether they would we could break them into, com- right. into commercials and then the, the thing that's evolved over the three years is instead of involving those designers in just commercials we're creating experiences yeah. which is sort of a thing that's you know, very kind of an American yeah. kind of starting conversations and creating experiential the whole idea of experiential and immersive experiences has been bandied around right. so what we're doing in my view is kind of an experience we're having a point yeah. together or whatever yeah to me, that's a real experience. Real people. Real people. Right. So what's an example of one of the experiential things that you've done? Well, the, the first project that we did uh, was Bud Light Super Bowl project for BBDO right. in New York. And it was, you know, they took a real flyer on us because we were a brand new company. Bud Light. Is this the Schwarzenegger thing? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Bud Light was a brand new client for them. And, you know, in fairness, Dave Rolf took, you know, a real yeah. uh, flyer on us. But the whole thing started life as a conversation about how to design a live experience. Yeah. Like how do we design a live experience that you can actually shoot live? Yeah. And then, of course, you have to cut a commercial out of it as normal, because otherwise the, the lads aren't going to pay for it. The idea was that we would take a person off the street and show them a night of their life in yeah. New York. The tagline being Bud Light up for whatever happens. So you take it, you grab a guy off the street and say, if I give you this. Was that bona fide? Yeah. How did, did you f- pick the guy? There's a long, this is, and this is where it gets kind of interesting and tricky and, and Freudian and whatever. Yeah. It's, it's like there's a lot of effort that goes into picking the right guy because yeah. you want to pick the right guy without letting him know you're picking him to do something. Yeah. We set up a series of ruses to try and find people who might be up for this or up right. for that or up for the other thing. We set up a kind of a marketing summit and we invited people and we paid them 20 bucks to show up to this marketing summit. The initial few days was let's weed weed out people who just say, ah, fuck, you know, I don't have enough time for this, yeah. and I'm off. You know? yeah. So the first few days are like boring, and then you start kind of getting into, okay, you have 20 or 30 people who are left, and then you start interviewing them. You start interviewing them saying, you know, you're going to be a brand ambassador, we can't really tell you what the brand is, but you know, later on we start, we start telling them that it's a beer brand and that there's probably some sort of social aspect to it so we need to kind of see what they're like in a restaurant situation Brilliant. just go on and, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. it's all I'd say it's obviously but there still is the, there still is the kind of sleight of hand where it's not actually just a guy from the street like and no, I, I, no, I, I, no. knowing my side of the app yeah. as well like, no you know yeah. no of course like it's not the no one is going to entrust you with yeah. you know tens of literally Do the client tens. have to approve them? yes okay. so there's a client approval process the same as a regular commercial yeah. at the beginning of these kind of things the client is always really really nervous yeah because they inevitably ask the question you know what happens if this guy arrives on set and like drops his trousers and takes a giant shit on the floor yeah it's like 
And we say, well, that's probably not going to happen because... Well, do well on YouTube. Might do well on YouTube. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, that's probably not going to happen. And you had... So, so I remember there was a lamb in an elevator. There was... Yeah, uh, yeah we had Reggie Watts. playing table tennis. And we had Reggie Watts in a limo. Yeah. Minka Kelly doing style on the guy. We had Don in the, in the, in the, in the, in the elevator with the lava and we had a bunch of twins yeah. and we had Arnie and then we, had, we ended up with One Republic. So that right. was the kind of arc of it. I felt when I saw it that it was, I almost wouldn't have done it on the Super Bowl. I thought, it, I yeah. thought that was too much of a, too much happening. It was too noisy. Yeah. It would have been a cool thing to do at a, at a, yeah. you know, just as, as a thing. Yeah. You're hitting the nail on the head now. This is, this is exactly this my very, very, very long-winded point was that that was an experience for one guy and I think we missed the opportunity to make it an experience for a number of people. Yeah. More than one and less than a couple of hundred. But the idea that you can curate a couple of hundred interesting people for that brand to witness something like that doesn't really cost a lot more to do that. No, yeah. To expose Once them. you're in with all once those stars. In, yeah, 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 once yeah. you're in, and, you know, we had... We had a crew, 750 or something, oh my like God. 60 cameras, you know, it was full on. Yeah. So did that make you that? Was that was that your big, big, that big That was our thing? break. That was a very critical moment for me, for yeah. our company. You pulled it off very well, because I can imagine the complexity of that. It was complex, but you know yourself, when you're making films, films are sort of as complex as that, but they go on forever. Yeah. Whereas in this scenario, we had three months, two months prep, and then the thing itself happened over 18 hours. Right. We shot an 18-hour day, yeah. and that was it. It was very risky for everyone, and very, very complex. And it scored pretty well in all those yeah, tracker things. Yeah, and we won, had. you know, the following year, then we won gold here for production film craft, which is... That was like our first thing. We Particularly is what your whole shtick is about production yeah, design. Which, exactly. The production design was excellent, didn't it? Are you, are you pessimistic about the future of filmmaking? No, I'm not super pessimistic about the future of filmmaking. I think we're going to... I think what, what has happened is the middle ground of films that were being made, which would have tended to be possibly the films that we would have liked, yeah. the bigger budget, 20 to 40 million yeah. dollar, clever, well-acted, yeah. people at the height of their powers, that area is really tricky. Yeah. And that area may be gone or gone for the moment. Yeah. And so you're going to have... You're gonna have one to three million dollar sort of breakout films of like you know a whiplash type yeah, movie yeah. where it goes to Sundance and catches a fire and yeah. rightly so. Yeah. Or in our case, Once, which yeah. you know we I think we probably all know the story of Once, but again another miracle. Yeah. And and a product, interestingly enough, a product of sort of disaster in a way because that film fell apart with a bigger cast. And then the guys just decided, okay, we'll make it ourselves yeah. for 150 grand or 200 grand or whatever it was. And Once was a movie with Glenn Hansard about an Irish busker who fell in love with a Polish girl, right? Yeah. Well, and very worth checking out. Yeah, absolutely. And also, and, but just like, you know, caught that moment, but wouldn't have worked had it been made at the original budget with yeah. a real, with a yeah. real in inverted commas cast. John Cusack or something. Yeah, wouldn't have worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I, mean, I agree. You know, it's, like, it's something that Glenn brought to that part, which was very authentic. Well, I think the thing that really was interesting about that movie, you know, don't want to try and turn everything into this, but what's happening in that film is they, the two main characters in that movie were actually in love. They were married for a bit, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so that's real. Like what's yeah. happening there is real. Yeah. And John figured out a way of capturing that. Yeah. Because almost in the sort of like what we do, the hidden camera style. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, of course. But yeah. So what you're feeling there is your, and that's what people once they hear the music which they wrote. Yeah. And the story that is true. Like so you're moving you're moving this conversation towards the the idea of authenticity and stuff like that. Is that what is that? I what think it's what we're trying to do is, and it sounds kind of wanky or whatever, but what we're trying to do is we are trying to create real feeling right. and real connection. Right. And fuck the old oh I'll drink a Bud Light and I'll, you know I'm like whatever I'll get laid. Yeah. Now it's going to be. If, if a brand is smart enough that they want to really connect with the people who are important to the brand, mm. then there is a way of doing that. And we believe that way is creating an experience that those people can enjoy and feel connected to. Yeah. So what's your background? You're born in Dublin? Born in Dublin. Um, We're the same age. We are. But uh, And you went to school in uh, college in Dublin? No, never went to, never went to college. Ah, I never went to college either. Excellent. <laughs> I had to make up, uh, to get my job in, in the States, I had to make up that I went to college. And I decided that it would be very smart of me to tell everybody that I went to the Dublin School of Economics, which of course didn't exist. I think it possibly does exist now. So my <laughs> new, <create> a logo? <laughs> my new goal in life is to get, to get an honorary doctorate from the Dublin Brilliant. School of Economics, if it exists. Yeah, so uh, now I went to college just... Did my high school, and the leaving and left. Did the leaving and worked in Ireland a, a little bit and started making horrendous little sports inserts for RT uh, for kind of sporting events that nobody else wanted to cover. But like video stuff. Video stuff. Um, motor. I was into motorbikes and cars right. and stuff. So motor racing. Mandela Park. That kind of stuff. Yeah, the <laughs> national Irish and national rally championship <laughs> and. We shot a few things, and like. So you were always interested in the kind of film thing, were you? I got into it because I was interested in motorsport, right? And then I realised that I was, might be interested in like the PR or the filming or something like that of motorsport. Right. So I was like a nerd and rallied a car and all that kind of stuff. But in a weird way, we were making like sponsored programming before that existed because we were going around to small businesses that sponsored these events and saying to them you know if I get you on TV will you give me 500 quid yeah. <laughs> literally and then they'd give us 500 quid and then we'd go to RTE and we'd say eh, if I give you this if I give you this program for free will you show it yeah. and RTE would look at it and go hang on a second now who paid for this and we'd say well you know it was a few people and in fairness like their head of sport was awesome right. he sort of like with a nod and a wink said okay grand we'll run it right. and that's how we yeah. and it was it, you know, it's content yeah. yeah, it's content and you know you sort of have to take your hat off I think Tim O'Connor was the head that's of right. sport yeah. and you have to sort of like we were I myself and my partner at that time we were 18 17 or 18 years old and he obviously thought who are these fucking idiots? Like, fair fucking play to them. Yeah. Like, balls like a jockey's bollocks, as we'd say. And, you know, so that was, that was the beginning. You know, that was a disaster, and we lost money, and it was a, you know, we left Ireland with our tails between the legs, went to the UK. I sold insurance door-to-door in London, like, yeah. literally like Glengarry Glen Ross. Really? Awesome. Levine the Machine. Gene the... <laughs> exactly, Gene the Machine Levine. 
um, I worked in a place just like that. Were you more like Levine or the Tony? Roma? I was Roma. Uh, yeah. Who was I like? Who would have been my character? Yeah, probably would have been slightly more on the Tony Roma side, but not not as polished. Yeah. But I was good at it. But it was really like soul destroying. Yeah. You're selling insurance to. What was your head like? Can you remember back then? Were you worried about where uh, you were going or what you? No, were... not no, not really. I, I I suppose I thought it sort of had a kind of a mad thought that I was going to somehow be successful. I wasn't sure how or what. Right. And, and you know, I probably still feel that way. You know, maybe every I think everybody probably feels that way. Yeah. Um, I sort of had a bit of a belief that I was I was certainly good at bullshitting and talking to people and and I'm interested in people I kind of like people I like what people do regardless and I think that's a that's something that we do very well coming from Ireland yeah I agree I actually genuinely enjoy that yeah and and I think that is if you can figure out how that pays the bills then that's pretty major but yeah I spent a few years in London the insurance thing was interesting because you learn a lot you learn the psychology of objection handling and all these horrendous tools that you know Borderline unethical. Yes, absolutely. Borderline. <laughs> I think we were doing stuff. I'd say we were doing stuff that was definitely borderline <laughs> unethical, illegal. illegal. Uh, probably not fully illegal, but I think a lot of that stuff yeah, has been. It was stopped. sharp. It was sharp. Yeah. Oh yeah, very sharp. But you learn, like if you take this, some of the stuff. I still use some of the things that those yeah. guys taught me every day. Um, but anyway, a mate, a very very old mate of mine, a guy called Ralph, heard that there were visas coming the States and he was living in the States and going to college and he applied unbeknownst to us Ralph applied for me and about 10 of his mates and himself to get Morrison this is a lottery lottery visa lottery visa lottery happened in the 90s the story is he was in Savannah, Georgia, and the applications had to be in on a certain day, on a certain time, yeah. in Arlington, Virginia, or whatever. And Ralph applied. The first part of the process was really just a form, putting your name and your address in Ireland on it, nothing else. Yeah. And then they were picked out of a hat. And Ralph drove to Arlington, Virginia, with a thousand. He made a thousand copies. And he went. He drove around Arlington. He went to every different mailbox, and every single one of us got those visas wow was it was he doing that as a, a nice thing yeah just as a, he just thought it would be I mean he was he was trying to get his own thing, yeah but he just threw us in as part right. of it like yeah. he thought it would be the crime. did you all go Tony myself and Ralph went ah right I hope the other guys are listening to regret <laughs> that for the rest of their life not all I'm sure they're all doing great things <laughs> I've had a few people on the pod who have got visas like that and it actually has become a thing when they look back because yeah. they, they got the thing so that made them go. Yeah. Oh no, I wouldn't have gone. Like I wouldn't have gone. I was I was living with a woman in London. I was having a, I was having a great time. It was, you know, it was awesome. It was devastating to leave. Yeah. And my first like two or three months in the States was like the worst time of my life. Right. Absolutely horrendous. I felt like... Where were you? I was in Seattle. Right. Um, and I only knew only knew my mate Ralph uh, and his sister. Raining like Ireland. Raining like Ireland. Very PC, very pleasant. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, when you have no money and you don't know anybody... Did you get a job there? Couldn't get a job. For the first month, I couldn't get arrested. I couldn't get a job. <laughs> I couldn't get a job in McDonald's. Really? Yeah. I had no. I had one hundred and fifty-three dollars or something. It was an absolute disaster. 
Why do you think he couldn't get a job? Well, I think it's, and this is a, kind of an important thing for the rest of us and the rest of our lives. It's like, I think when you're desperate they for smell anything, it. relationship or a job or whatever, it's a, you have to be able to smell it off you. Yeah, they do. They yeah. smell the fear off you. And it's like, I, agree I was overqualified for yeah. McDonald's, you know, yeah. or whatever. Well, you know, I couldn't get a job in IHOP. I applied <laughs> everywhere. It was, it, was, it was brilliant. And then I, I was looking through whatever the Seattle voice is yeah. or whatever. I saw just an ad for an Irish bar. And it was like an ad for Irish music. It's a place called T.S. McHugh's. And I phoned up and I got to speak to the owner. And he was like, well, we're not really hiring anybody. You know, if you want to drop in, drop in. So I dropped in a few days later. I met this guy, a guy called Tom Griffith, and he was awesome. And we got on really great. And it was an Irish pub, but they'd never had an Irish person work there. So it was like an American sports bar with Irish branding on it. Right. So it was like before Irish pubs yeah. globally was a thing. And he so goes he on as Colleen, we got an Irish guy for our Irish yeah. pub. <laughs> well, the name of the place is... T.S. McHugh's it sounds right. like Thomas Shannon McHugh right of course it does um, yeah. <laughs> and he was an old he was like the grandfather he was the father of the guy who started yeah. well, anyway. his father came with a family that kind yeah. of thing yeah. that kind of thing he gave me a few shifts like working at the front desk yeah. and a little bit of money started coming in and that made all the difference yeah. it made all the difference it was, you know they became essentially my second family there yeah. and they were great and you're still in touch with them I am still in touch yeah, with them right. and I still I see them every now and again and they're just, they're just they, awesome. They're, they're, they're like a little uh, watering can on the seed of your, of your life. Yeah, yeah they are. Like it, it was a very important thing. It, it led to me getting back into film because at the, at the bar they were shooting a film in Seattle called Assassins, which was right. with um, with uh, Sly Stallone and yeah, Antonio Banderas. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes. And so they would all come into the bar every now and again, the, the crew and the, yeah. the guys, the guys, and I became friendly with. The costume designer, whose name was Elizabeth McBride, she was an awesome, awesome person, and I was talking to her over a few nights, like what I was wanted to do and all that kind of stuff. And she's like, "Well, you know, my shtick at the time was like, I want to learn about the business of film, the film business." Yeah. And she was like, "If you want to learn about the business, you need to get a job at a talent agency." Right. And she said, "I'll introduce you to my agent, who is a complete lunatic, but no better place if you can get yourself in there, no better place to learn." I was like grand. I didn't really know what it all meant. One night, working at the bar, the phone rings. We we did the like twelve ninety nine early bird special, and yeah. the old ladies would come in by the busload <laughs> to have you know chicken pot pie yeah. and whatever before they'd go to the symphony or whatever in Seattle. It was very near Seattle Center, and so the, I'm dealing with like a hundred old ladies who are panicking. The phone rings. T.S. McHugh's and this guy on the phone says um, I'm looking for Justin Morelui I said that's me trying to direct the old ladies whilst on the phone I said oh this is uh, Paul Hook calling from ICM in LA and Elizabeth McBride said you might be interested in it. I was like fuck <laughs> so one of those phones with a giant long cord yeah. on it and so I went around the corner like in a, like in a movie <laughs> yeah I went around the corner into a section of the restaurant that wasn't open yet and yeah. I sat down in the chair and I just said I don't care about the fucking old ladies now, God love them. And I sat on the phone, he basically interviewed me on the phone. Wow. And, I was like, and I was like mad. I was like, so, you know, what are your influences? You know, tell me about the movies you like. And I was like, what to say? You know, like, oh, I'm into Coppola movies, I like Apocalypse now. And that kind of stuff. He said to me, oh, when can you be down here for an interview? 
I said, I can get down tomorrow. And he's like, okay, you know, come in tomorrow afternoon. So I went down. To L.A.? To L.A. I flew down there on Alaska <laughs> or something. Right. Um, I'd never been to L.A. I didn't know anything about what the job was, but the, the job of being an assistant uh, for a talent agent is very much like being a super secretary. Yeah, yeah. Like you, most people who get jobs there can type 100 yeah. words a minute. I'm, I can type like one word a minute yeah. or two fingers. You get the never, suits pressed and stuff. Yeah. yeah, you do everything. You do yeah. all of that, but you're really like, you need to be very sharp at like sending out stuff and yeah. messenger runs and, yeah. and you know dealing with hundreds and hundreds of phone calls. And it's quite complicated. 24 on call yeah, all the time. Yeah, it's on call all the time and yeah. all that kind of stuff. That, that stuff didn't worry me, but the stuff about being a secretary, like being a super secretary. So I just said, oh yeah, no, I'm amazing and I can do all that kind of stuff and whatever. And so then he sent me down to... HR and this woman called Gloria Kennedy interviewed me and I learned later that if they send you to HR it means they're not hiring you. HR lets you down slowly, right? Right. So <laughs> I got I got on very well. She was Gloria's from Canada and we got on very, very well and she kinda liked me and whatever and it, it was great and she's like, you know, Paul's a bit concerned that you mightn't be, you know, so great at the old secretarial stuff. And I was like, Oh well, you know, I learn and I'm smart and and I'd read a book before I came to LA. I'd read a book about the talent agency business. It was a guy called Mark Litvak who wrote the book. And in the book, he sort of talks about the three different agencies CAA, William Morris, yeah. and ICM. And that's kind of, that was like the limit of my knowledge. Yeah. So I said to Gloria, Asher, listen, it doesn't matter. You know, I have an interview at CAA at six tonight. <laughs> and it's so it's no panic, no panic whatsoever. And she just looked at me and she takes the phone, puts it on speaker, dials Paul's number and says, Paul, I think we should hire this kid because he's got an interview at CAA and I think we'll lose him. So wow. that's how I got hired. That's how I got hired. Of course, you know, I didn't become an amazing secretary. I was a horrendous assistant, but I got my foot in the door there. And it was interesting. I, I worked for Paul for about a year and I learned a lot. Yeah. And I learned, and Paul's still very serious in the business, probably the most serious below the line agent ever. So, began. how long was this period between two dimes to rub together, the bar, and then... It seemed, it seemed like an age. Um, it, in actuality, I arrived in Seattle in 92, and I moved to L.A. in 95. Okay, okay. And, and then by 97, you were 90, made... And 97, I kind of, again, sort of wrangled my way into the agent training program, which is the thing that you have to have a degree for. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> um, well, you could have gone back to the Dublin School of Economics and said, "Can you just forward my degree?" Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I got the mortar board. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I got into the agent training program, and then I sort of came up with this scheme to try and set up an ICM office in Ireland. But I sort of realised that in order to make your way up the ladder within the agency world. You either have to have really amazing clients, or you have to sort of create a new piece of business. So Ireland at the time put together a really important incentive package for filmmaking, so yeah. that they were massive tax breaks yeah. for filming in Ireland. Things like Saving Private Ryan and stuff were, were were all made in Ireland at the time. That was the time you went back there to, to exactly. surf that wave. Yep, that's the point of entry, if you like. There were two two things that we were trying to do at ICM. One was to try and catch hold of the amazing Irish talent before they got to the States mm. so that we would have a sort of... And it is pretty good there, right? I mean, yeah. editing and... Yeah, no, I mean, no question. We have, you know, and now, much more so than then, yeah. now we have, like, 
more experienced but it was always Ireland was always a place that people enjoyed shooting it was always the ancillary things around yes that were amazing great yeah. food good yeah. fun good yeah. points people didn't care who you were when you went back to set up this um, casting this, this office, yeah. office where was your head at you kind of left under not a cloud but like you kind of gone ah oh, this is not I'm shaking and then you're back now suddenly yeah. with a cigar like hey yeah, it was a bit of, there was a bit of that and I had there was a period of you know because I'd been sort of trained in the sort of Glen Gary Glen Ross yeah. <laughs> not dissimilar in ICM I mean selling actors yeah. is like selling carpets or, or it's a business yeah and so obviously in Ireland there's no real history of agenting or yeah and the approach in America is like poaching clients and you know getting in front of clients that are yeah. represented by the other guys and tell them how amazing you are in comparison yeah. to them and but you were made now, were you? You were. You no, were, I, no. I mean, it was, was there, still were wealthy still, at this no, stage. No, no, not at all. And um, no, I mean, it was a complete and utter kickball and a scramble, and <laughs> just you know, seat of the pants, trying to figure it out. Right. And, um, ultimately, ICM in Dublin wasn't successful because right. really the deals are too small. But it was. It was. I learned a lot, and I learned more about the creative process there. Yeah. And that's probably where I started beginning to kind of get into figuring out that I might enjoy the creative side. Opportunity came then, a mate of mine sent me a script for a film that he wanted to make, an Irish guy called Bill Maher. Very good script, but it would make, it would meant kind of relocating to LA. So in 2004, moved back to LA uh, to make this film, which was called Ferris Wheel, which ultimately became Sleepwalking. And that was my first movie made. So, you, so he gave you the script, and you decided, I'm going to go, and I'm going to get this made yeah. over in LA. It was time to move, and I, I thought the script was very good, and I really believed in Bill, and he was a very old mate of mine as well, and I kind of just thought... If we're going to give this a shot, that was quite audacious, though, to just go. I'm. I mean, I, I know you have background, of course, in the movies and in the agent, and you've got presumably lots of contacts. But that was an audacious move to just sort of say, "I'm going to go and get this movie," and, and also to pull it off. I mean, now knowing in the greater scheme of things, it took two years to get it made, but that wasn't. That actually isn't that long in the greater scheme no, of things, no. but. Yeah, it's, I think it was just being a bit naive. Beg forgiveness and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Just, so where know, did, how did you get the... Like, people yeah. listening to this would be really interested because the amount of people who... I've made a movie and I'm trying to get the funding was so hard. and it's, yeah. it's How did you get the funding for it? Yeah, so I think a good friend of mine at home, David Collins, who made once, actually told me years ago that uh, two funny things, one funny, one serious thing. He said, making films... There's only one thing you need to know about making films making films is all about hair I was like what do you mean David it's all about hair he said it always boils down to hair the actor because you're making indie movies so you're casting you, you've finally got your movie up and running because you've cast this actor yeah. who's like a bit of a star but he's in a Spielberg movie and Spielberg's asked him to shave his head so but you need him to have long hair in your movie so you need a wig but you can't afford a wig so it always becomes he said making indie movies is just because about hair so I'll always remember that it's so funny and, and kind of true yeah. later on I made a movie with Jeff Bridges and the agent he's very hairy he is hairy <laughs> and the agent says to me um you know, making Jeff's deal is very easy, but you know, you have to make his hair guy's deal and his driver's deal. Yeah. And he's like, 
David Collins was right. Is he like the big Lebowski? No, he's a serious guy. Um, we talked a bit about Lebowski. One of my favorite movies. Of the yeah, time. yeah. He talked about Lebowski, and he, t- he was telling me that um, he was very nervous about doing Lebowski, and actually turned the movie down a few times oh. because he didn't want his kids to think of him as a complete stoner. <laughs> which, which at the time I think he might have been. Which is a bit rich coming <laughs> yeah, from him. Yeah, I think so, he was typecast for yeah, that movie. So. But of course, it's like by far the most successful film he's ever done. Yes, yeah. You know, wouldn't be Jeff Bridges probably without that film. Yeah. So we got we got sidetracked about yeah. the hair thing. The, yeah. the second so thing the, this guy told yeah, you. Yeah. The second. The second. The like first thing was Billy Connolly concert here. I right? know. Yeah. It's like, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's um, no, it's just more about it was more about the you know the finance the financing side of things, just how tricky and complicated the financing can often be, and you know that really ultimately getting films made and getting films financed is only about energy, and so it's about how much energy you can like put into it. And so this is a nebulous, wanky thing in a way, because but if having been through it a few times yeah. it really is about energy yeah I agree do you have the energy in the tank to fight the fight day in day out for as long as it takes and even when you're up and running you know, we've had films that the financing has fallen apart and while you're seems, in production yeah, yeah. It, seems, it seems impossible you know, yeah. but just having the energy and the will to try who pays for that where do, you, where do you go do you go to yeah so we we, we raised we raised a bunch of money privately from you know wealthy individuals who are interested in being in the movie business you often hear that there's no shortage of people who want to put money into the film business but I'm sure people who are listening to this will be like where the fuck are those guys <laughs> but, but it is true that they exist and it is true that particularly in Los Angeles every day they arrive like the starlets I learned over the years that the, the opening gambit with any of these people is like don't get involved in making this movie if this is not money that you can afford to lose completely. It acts two ways. One, which is you're, you are telling the truth, but at the same time, you're also saying to a person, you know, are you are you serious enough? Are you wealthy enough to yeah. set this money on fire? Yeah. And there's an element of ego in that conversation. Yeah. It's like, yeah, of course I am. I don't yeah. care. You know, I have loads of money. There's an element of, of that, I think, in yeah. that process as well. But we, we essentially raised private equity to make films which you know is a complete and utter disaster and you know we raised that money and basically lost that money for our investors you may get some of it back you may get none of it back so really you have to be you have to want to do this for another reason we've been involved in about a dozen movies yeah about that what percentage of them are have been profitable zero (laughs) do you want me to edit that bit out no um (laughs) Zero have been profitable to us, the film. Right. All of the films have made money for someone. They've either made money for a sales agent or a distributor, but I don't think any of the films have made money for the equity portion of the films. For the investors? Yeah, for the equity investors. What what percentage of forgetting these ridiculous, flabby, blockbuster, tentpole movies that you took before them? What percentage of independent movies, these movies you talked about at the bottom end of the spectrum, what percentage of them make money? I would say, in my experience, less than 10%. I was going to guess about 5 yeah. yeah. I, it's sort of like the dirty little secret of the movie business. It's like, oh, that guy 
brought his movie to Sundance and they, they paid nine million for it or something. You know, that's the version of a guy walked into Vegas yeah. and pulled. Thank you, Robert movie. Rodriguez, by the way. For yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, it does happen, you know, yeah. and that's kind of what fuels everybody, and it should continue to fuel everybody. But I just think we need to be more yeah. eyes wide open about it. Yeah. Although things have changed now that there are more outlets for films yeah. so you know Netflix and Amazon Prime those guys are taking a view on that content and they're saying if we make this film and we spend 10 million on it we'll get a certain number of su- subscribers or we're servicing our subscriber base yeah. and that's worth something yeah. and there's like a there's an algorithm yes. that makes sense yes. for them but you know the days of making a movie for 5 million dollars going to some going to Sundance and selling it for $10 million, which is what you have to sell your movie for in order for it to break even. Um, or gone. Like a kind of, kind of gone. Kind of gone or going, you know, like it happens once or twice. So you got this movie made, the Sleepwalking movie. Yeah. Your friend who wrote it must have been just over the moon, yeah, as they say. He did an amazing job, and it was him who did this. He convinced Charlize Theron to be in the film, right. which ultimately got the movie financed and he had an amazing cast she likes Irish men she does like Irish men yeah and, <laughs> but he did yeah we did an exceptional job and it was an ama- you know it was amazing and kind of launched his career and it, it was just unfortunate that it wasn't it didn't quite become a movie that was knock it out of the park about, yeah you know, but it was Again. So for you, the personal achievement, though, I got, I got it. We got there. Like, I mean, yeah. the two of you, like that last, the day it launched, or whatever the big day is. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I suppose that's part of life. The enjoyment of that kind of moment is kind of fleeting, because what happened in that particular scenario, we've been trying for two years to get that movie and another movie made, and then we got both of them financed at the same time, and so we were split up. We were in St. Louis shooting this other film uh, called Still Waters. Uh, Lake, Be- Lake Bell, Jason Clark, and Clifton Collins. Quite a good little indie cast. Yeah. Sort of like a knife in the water kind of three-hander sexual tension. Kind of interest, interest, I might have seen it. Nice little, n- nice little you know, million-dollar movie. But right. Pretty good. Wooden cottage by a lake kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I did see it. Yeah, I think I did see it. Nice one. So we were making that movie. That movie was very hard. The financing was very precarious. It was yeah. all like very patched together. You don't, you don't get that. Your living history. Yeah, yeah you're, you're exactly. You don't get that moment to go. Wow, that was. Yeah. we did yeah. fucking great there. Did you ever get to the point where you went? Well, like, like now, yeah. I've now kind of made it. I kind yeah. of. No, I haven't got there yet. I don't right. think. I don't feel like. I feel like I'm at the beginning now with our with Hilo for the first time ever I think I have an amazing business partner this guy Brennan yeah. who has kind of a, a brilliant set of skills that I don't have yes. very organised very good strategically knows the agency world very well had a right. digital agency and just very good compliment to me the, the character who says listen do we really need to spend 20 grand on the fill in the blank for me I need someone who kind of controls that a bit because so, otherwise we're yeah. just a, you know, someone who's looking after the, the pans and the pennies yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, Have you left the film business behind now, or do you think? I mean, I know you're doing it as part of this sort of wider commercial thing, but... I mean, funny, funnily enough, I have left the film business, but I made two films last year. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a project called The United Kingdom that David Yellowell and Rosamund Pike are in. It was a project very close to me. It's about the first president of Botswana, a guy called Soretsi Kama. 
based on a book that we optioned years ago, you know, 10 years ago, and um, finally was made last year with Pate, and I'm a Asante director, so it'll come out end of this year or something, we're hoping. But again... So the name of the movie is United Kingdom. The United Kingdom. I'm surprised that movie name hasn't been taken with us. Yeah, it's a great it name. is a pretty good name. <laughs> it's a pretty good name. What do you say to the young you, or someone like you, You've, you've, you've already got a lot of pearls of wisdom that you throw, you've thrown out in this podcast, but what do you say to the young fella who's in your shoes right now in, in Dublin or in L.A. or wherever? Yeah, I mean, I, I think my old man said it to me, which I thought was great advice, um, which was get out there and kind of do whatever you want. Suss out as many things as you possibly can. Try and figure out what you're good at. Don't worry about whether you fail or not. Um, there's no. You do have to fail a bunch of times. And like, you know, a brilliant thing that really helped me was you can always go home <laughs> if you fuck up. You know, you can always go home, and their home is there, and people are there, and there's stuff going on, and it's not. You don't have to go home with your tail between your legs, and who, you know, no one gives a shit about that. My grandmother <laughs> said to me actually when I when I left for Singapore, I was, I was in '96. I went to Singapore. Right. She said, "Stay for the year." Yeah. Because her advice was, "Shit's gonna go down." Yeah. But the yeah. first bit of shit that goes down, don't just run home. Yeah. Deal with it, but yeah. then come home after a year if yeah, you want so to. If you want to, yeah. No, that's, that's a great that's, piece of advice. It is a great piece of advice. Not to be afraid of, you know. I think a lot of people that I meet in the states are like afraid to get out there and put themselves out there and just you know. I think the other thing that I've learned over the years is like if you stick at something that you know in the back of your mind that you're pretty good at or you, you might have potential at, if you just stick at that thing for long enough and you, you stay standing up you'll probably be successful in that thing so yeah. well a man who has stayed standing up uh, brilliant story loved I didn't expect this at all I loved it a uh, guy from my hometown um, and uh, lots of wisdom and uh, I think the main thing for me is just you always had a feeling that you could do it and you went and did it just some more to thank you for being on a pint with Shawnee B thanks very much indeed I really enjoyed it another pint coming up <laughs> yeah nice <laughs>